0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Ampere Amplified, the Ampere Computing Podcast. My name is Mahesh Madhav and we're here at Ampere Studios overlooking the Fremont Bridge in downtown Portland. Today I'm joined by two people in the design verification team. The first is Kalpana Kothapalli. She's the Director of Design Verification. Hi Kalpana. Hi Mahesh. Stacy Ross is here. He's a Senior Principal Engineer in Design Verification. Hi, Hi Stacey. Mahesh. How's it going? Pretty good. I'm really excited to talk about design verification because it's one of these disciplines that we don't learn about too much in school, and uh, we'd like this podcast also to be kind of a didactic for uh, people who are coming out of grad school and trying to figure out what kind of jobs there are in the industry, so I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, I want to start off by kind of defining what design verification is and how it Slots into the kind of the pipeline of how CPUs are made. So do you want to take a crack at it?
1: Sure. Yeah In the whenever we're building anything you first want to figure out What is it that you're going to build and then you think about like what are the um, How exactly you're going to build it and then you also want to make sure that whatever you build is actually matching the original intent and so building CPUs is a very similar process, although much more complicated and as a result, much more exciting as well, at least for people who are doing design verification. So when when we decide to build a CPU or any IP in this industry, first thing is the architecture, what sort of capabilities we want to put into this design that will make this design competitive in the industry. Then the design team, typically the logic design team comes into play, they Figure out how to translate that high-level architecture specification into a microarchitecture and then code that into RTL. And then once the RTL is done, the physical design team comes in and kind of goes through their flows to make sure that this is realizable into a transistor layout. What design verification team does is we take the RTL design that is coded and we understand what is the architectural specification. And we need to make sure that the RTL design and the specification, they agree with each other. If they don't agree, there is a mismatch or a defect somewhere, either in the spec or in the RTL. And then we figure out what's wrong, and then we fix it, and then we iterate through the process till we say that, yeah, it's ready to tape out and move on from there.
0: So it seems like there's a a very close partnership between design, DV, and architecture. Yes. It feels yes. like DV has to understand and actually help help create the architecture so that it can be verified in a timely manner as well.
1: Yeah, so typically we very much would like to engage in the definition process itself so that as I said, we, you know, whatever we are dreaming of through the during the architecture phase that is realizable within the time constraints or whatever constraints that we have. And also, we want to make sure we are able to prevent any defects or or bugs in the spec itself uh, as early as possible. So the sooner we understand what the intent is through the specs, the faster we can help the whole product realize its goal in terms of assuring the required uh, design quality.
0: At what stage of the the architecture process do you think DV should engage.
2: Should engage during the definition and the the, the original definition like Alpina said. The reason is we you know experienced DV engineers can give you a lot of insight into the the relative complexity of your design especially in areas that you might not consider. You can get feedback on how hard something is going to be to verify. And so the easier, you know, the the design verification process tends to be the long pole towards product development towards the end of product development. And so, if you can alleviate that long pole, you're looking at faster turnarounds. Therefore, getting feedback from DV to say, "Okay, well, you can you can you can introduce this feature, but it's going to cost you this much in terms of, you know, your project timeline because DV simply won't it, DV can't allow it to proceed without thorough investigation without complete verification right so you have to if you're introducing a complex feature there's a cost you know there's a there's a design there's a cost on the design side there's a cost on the architecture side there's also a cost on the verification side so you need feedback from all three parts
0: what's the trade-off is there is there an inherent trade-off in for including a feature
2: that takes too many resources to to verify yeah um I like to look at it in terms of risk and schedule. Yeah, You're you're going to make a trade-off between risk and schedule, right? So you're either going to produce the part earlier at a higher level of risk or you're going to produce the part later at a lower level of risk. And so uh, neither of those tends to be very acceptable to, to project managers. So.
1: I think the other angle of this is also the investment, like the ROI of that, right? Sometimes we may think that... Um, during the definition stage like yeah it's a you know it, it looks simple enough that we should be able to go implement it but if it's not easy to verify and and there are cases like that when architecturally it looks simple but like how do i check the correctness is very very hard and so if i end up having to put like five dv engineers on that then you just don't have for like two months you just don't have enough return right so when we are scoping out the project, and that's another aspect of like getting early so that we can scope out not just the design cost, but also the verification cost to make sure that overall our feature set has the right ROI. So you can in the end make the product better, not just from a quality perspective, but even the you know the return.
0: So I want to ask, what are the overarching philosophies or pillars of DV?
2: Well, there are, uh, we can look at it in terms of the the major efforts and outputs of dv the three pillars of dv could be viewed as stimulus which is sort of the 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 exercising of the design checking which is our ability to actually detect bugs we haven't actually said the word bugs i don't think yet bugs being kind of one of the major aspects of dv and then the third pillar is coverage And coverage tends to be a little subtle because it's an area where you can convince yourself that you need to spend a ton of time on, but really all what you need to do in terms of coverage is you're guaranteeing that you have tested the areas that need to be tested. And so those are the three pillars, stimulus, checking, and coverage. And then there's sort of a fourth aspect, which is the test plan. And the test plan is is the, the document that wraps those three together and describes them all in detail. And so those are the three pillars and the foundation of DV. Can you go a little bit deeper into to what are we talking about when we talk about stimulus? So for instance, if I have a design and I'm, let's imagine a core design, a CPU design, that's running programs, you know, example programs or test programs that test program is being written in order to try to find bugs right so i may write an assembly program that does a bunch of loops so that i can test my branch predictor that's the stimulus that's attempting to find bugs in the branch predictor now of course stimulus can find bugs in areas you don't expect right if you, you could write a program that is attempting to find bugs in your branch predictor, and you might actually find bugs in your address generation or your, your jump execution unit or any number of other places, even your decoders, you could find bugs in areas you don't intend. But we, do, we typically write our stimulus either with, with an intent in mind or with a, a what we would call random stimulus, which is a, a type of stimulus where we use randomness to hit a wide swath of functionality in a shorter amount of time. You said something interesting there. You
0: said you write tests. Are all the tests written, or are there some tests which are randomly
2: generated? Yeah, you can, you can create tests either with a specific intent, which we could call a directed test, or you could have, for instance, a, a program that just generates random instructions and doesn't have a specific intent. Like, for instance, if you examine the output of a random generation process, you would say, well, this doesn't look like real software at all. This is just doing weird stuff. You know, that that doesn't make any programmatic sense. Well, this is fine, as long as the stimulus that you're creating, this program, is capable of exercising different aspects of the logic design. And now you're finding the bugs. And so the scale of random versus directed is actually a continuum. You can have things that are fully directed, meaning I wrote every instruction in this assembly program, and it does exactly this, and this is its intent. And you can have all the way on the other scale, you can have just a program that just spews completely random instructions with no direction, and you can have anywhere in between. And so specifying the, the randomness of your random test generator and actually measuring that is something that coverage is used for. So that kind of links together stimulus and coverage. If I, if I use purely random stimulus, I have to be able to prove that I'm actually doing interesting things with that and not just... You know, I could create a random test generator that just does ads and yeah, it's doing things randomly, but it's not necessarily going to find very many bugs now. And my coverage will tell me that my coverage will tell me, oh yeah, you've, you've only exercised this percent of the machine, which is not good.
0: How do you measure coverage though? Like, how do you have that percentage? Like what is 100%? It seems to be like there's a, like exponential amount of, uh, Yes. Bits you could flip.
1: Yes, yes. So coverage space and uh, is, I think, almost like a... Um, it's, not, it's not like bounded, right? Like if you really go for the ideal thing, it's not literally bounded, which is why we in DB also typically try to point out that, you know, DB is never done. Um, what we do is we look at the the design that we're trying to verify and... And based on the complexity of the of the design itself uh, and the verification space, we typically set the targets. And for, for, then there are different types of coverage, right? You have uh, code coverage and you have functional coverage. So code coverage, if you are doing something like toggle coverage, for example, you can shoot for like 100% in that. But if you are doing regular just, you know, line coverage kind of a thing, then depending on, you know, if you have dead code in your design, then you're not going to get 100% coverage. So the intent would still be that, yeah, I want to make sure everything is covered in that. When I'm, so I analyze all the holes, but it's not like 100% code coverage is is not necessarily the goal. It's okay if it's not 100%. But you want to, like, let's say we, we might, generally typically we select like 90% or above is the coverage target. In some cases, it can be higher, it can be lower. It it, it varies on multiple factors. Understanding the holes and making sure that the holes that you're leaving on the table are acceptable. This is the risk that I think Stacey mentioned earlier, right? And you you usually want to target more than you can achieve because you can get 100% coverage and actually you might be leaving a whole bunch of bugs on the table. So you don't want to do that. You want to have a much bigger space and make sure you have covered enough of that and whatever is not covered, you analyze systematically, make sure it's okay, or if it's not okay, you go plug those holes and then you, you give the thumbs up that it's, yeah, you have hit your coverage targets. And that whole process itself, it, that it's not a science or like a for recipe that you can give everybody, right? It, it's You have to understand what your design is and then you go from there. We can give some guidance, but you've got to work through the design.
0: Got it. So I'm coming from the performance world, mm-hmm. and we like to run different kinds of tests, right? We we tend to run benchmarks. Right. And historically, what we've done is, is kind of chop up those benchmarks into little pieces and then run those on the RTL just to expose performance bugs. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we find that they expose functional bugs too. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a big pie of the different kinds of tests. How important are the, the perf tests to your functional correctness?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Like verification is a like a multi layered problem. Right. Typically what we do at sort of the either the unit level or even at a subsystem or even SOC level, what the the functional D V team does is it's mostly aimed at targeting the design. And so there is not a lot of meaningful like programs that we write. We write sequences or random test generators, right, that that create interesting traffic to find bugs. The piece that we tend to usually miss is systematically how real-world software works. They're trying to achieve a purpose, right? So we, we don't have a lot of that traffic in our tests. And there are bugs that are found usually when we have only systematic flow. And so I think benchmarks or any applications that you try to run on, let's say, emulation, which is the only platform we have in pre-Silicon time frame, they help us find those program flow-related bugs. If you are really doing a good job with the design verification, with random testing and directed testing, then you really shouldn't find any bugs with your perf benchmarks or applications. But I would say it, it's a... It's a safety net, but also I like complementing. That way, maybe there are some trade-offs that we can make in our design verification process because you're providing that coverage, right? So they they complement each other nicely, especially during the whole development phase. And so, yeah, I I, I absolutely love having that feedback.
2: Well, you like to have your performance model pretty early in the project, right? Because otherwise you're not really sure how good the thing is you're designing. And And so you're exercising the performance model with these snippets, it makes, it, it makes absolute sense that that's the first real software, and I'm making air quotes, that you run against your RTL model. And so it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a very symbiotic relationship, I think.
0: Yeah, it seems like we're, we're trying to move as much of the testing as soon as possible, mm-hmm. right? Whenever something can be exercised, we try to exercise it. I think that's a good philosophy. Yes.
2: It is. I uh, I think you can make a a pretty clear statement that a bug found early in the project is better than that same bug found later in the project. Now, that being said, there is a cost in in addition to to a cost for fixing bugs, there is a cost for finding bugs. And you you don't necessarily want to target very complicated bugs at the beginning of your project. And that's where you might run into trouble with a performance snippet. You might run into you know this is a complicated program, and so it 's exercising these things that at this stage of the project you know would would kick our butts and so uh, so sometimes that might be a problem, and you might say well we're not we 're really not ready to turn on that feature yet because we 're still working on basic loads or stores or something like that
1: and I think to illustrate the point further right with like how important it is to have both types of testing. I've worked on a few projects which have taped out and are out there in the field already, right? And I have at least a couple of examples where we have seen that, yeah, the random testing pass rate is very high. And then we run this benchmark, and the first thing that we run actually fails because it's doing something that, you know, none of us thought of. It's like, oh, wow, I didn't even know that that's how software would actually use that capability, right?
0: It might be doing the same thing one million times in a row. (laughs) Yes, and I
1: remember, like... X-Copy back in the old Windows days, right? That used to be one of the favorite things that we would run, actually, like on silicon. But you, we didn't find a problem with anything in pre-silicon. But then the moment you ran this X-Copy program on post-silicon, boom, you find a problem, right? It, because it just shows that, yeah, sometimes repetitious activity can set up some interesting microarchitecture state in the design that... When you're doing random thing, random stuff, you just don't warm up the machine sufficiently, right? And so, it it teaches us, or it gives us insight into test cases that we just don't even think of, right? And so, it, it's it's really important.
0: So, I want to go back a little bit and talk about the purpose of DV. And uh, you had mentioned to me at one point, uh, we want to try to get it, get the product out as soon as possible. Yeah. Can
2: you talk a little bit about the the financial implications? So, you could envision a graph where the x-axis is time, a project timeline, right? And the y-axis could be the cost of finding and fixing a particular bug. Clearly, early in the project, when you're only operating with software models of your, of your design, it's very cheap to find and fix bugs. And as you get later in the project, you're faced with project with uh, RTL freezing, for instance. And now if you find a bug you, after your RTL is frozen, you have to unfreeze it, which requires redesign work. You know, your, your back-end team, your implementation team is has already been working on this hardware for some amount of time. If you find a bug in it, you're forcing them to reset some of their work and redo it, right? So that cost jumps up dramatically after rtl freeze when the implementation team is fully active then of course after tape out now you've got this you've got a chunk of metal in your hand and if that chunk of metal has a bug in it it's very expensive to to find both find it because it's very difficult to find bugs in in the in final silicon as well as fixing it because now you have to completely re-rev your design send it off to the fab again and so this graph you know envision this exponential curve going upwards as the as the project timeline winds on you know the every day that you spend after silicon has been produced is a market opportunity lost and every bug that you find is additional cost there as well and so you can have cases where you're you know every every day you spend doing post silicon verification is x millions of dollars that your company is losing you know because they they haven't made gotten their product to market because they haven't been able to prove that the design was was uh sufficiently free of, free of flaws
0: yeah that's great motivation for for doing this kind of kind of work i know when we started up the performance model and the performance simulator we wanted to do something I want to say radical, but kind of industry standard now. And and what we did is we had we have unit tests for every single block in our in our model, and make sure that they stay on rails as they're as they get brought up and as the model gets mature. And I'm wondering how prevalent is it in the industry to do
2: this kind of unit test and bring up? No, I'd say it's it's extremely common decomposing a complicated design into pieces is something that every, any design project, and I'm not just talking about CPU design, but also software, software design, or even, you know, making a bridge or something like that, some, some huge engineering work, decomposing that problem into pieces, and then doing the engineering on that piece is a very common approach, right? First of all, you know, designs, and and going back to the topic of CPU designs, designs are so complicated, they simply can't fit. In one person's head anymore. I remember, you know, in in my in my past history at Intel, there was a brilliant architect named Glenn Hinton, Hinton, and he was famous for saying, you know, I, I can no longer fit the complexity of this design inside my head, which led me to create a unit of measurement of complexity, the Hinton. So, you know, <laughs> if your your CPU can be one point two Hinton's, huh. uh, but. Uh, one point two glens to yeah that's right that 's right stick, stick it in s- their heads <laughs> yeah and so and so decomposition is a requirement because one person simply can't understand the entire design, so now you've broken your pieces up into these logical chunks or sorry your design up into these logical chunks, now you have a chance of comprehending and actually attacking bugs in that design and so and then once you 've gotten a reasonable level of confidence at that at that piece level, what we call the block level you can integrate those pieces together and start testing the, the larger design. And then there may even be another step beyond that, where you're now bringing in your memory controller and your, you know, your, your whatever DRAM you have on the chip and your PCIe controller. At the SOC level, that's another level of integration. And you have to do an entirely different kind of testing at those integration levels than you do at the block level. So it's, it's a very interesting, complicated challenge. I prefer to do my work at the block level because I feel like I can understand the design better. There are some people they're crazy that like to do integration level testing more. I don't understand those people, but hey, to each his own yeah.
1: <laughs> you understand you know the how everything works through the machine, and you need people who have that understanding as well right because even if they're you... crazy <laughs> <laughs> even if they're crazy, yes with I think both of them like are complementing each other without that. When things don't work, come silicon. Uh, Maybe each of us know our pieces, but like, how does everything you know flow? How does everything work together? You won't have any idea, right? So you need both.
0: I kind of think of it as there's two pieces. There's the algorithm that you create, and then there's interface for how you get at that algorithm. And I can make the best algorithm, but if I if I don't have enough buffers to run my prefetcher, or if I don't have enough credits to send those requests out. It doesn't matter how good my algorithm is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think that motivates the crazy people at the interface. <laughs> yep.
2: Yeah. Clean, clean interfaces is a good thing. Is In addition to clean design, clean interfaces are a huge thing. And that's that's something that, that, that uh, design verification can give feedback on you know, during that architecture stage and say, well, you've designed a very complicated interface between these two blocks. When I'm operating at the block level, I have to write software that emulates this neighbor of mine say accredited interface, you know, and uh, if that interface, the more complicated that interface is, the more complicated my modeling software has to be. And by the way, that's something that we, ha- we should talk about. The elephant in the room is that there are, there is such a thing as DV bugs, bugs that are specific to the collateral yes. that verification creates. We wish it weren't true, <laughs> but we write bugs at the same rate as every other designer or software coder, uh, you know, probably 10% or depending on what kind of a feather in your cap. That's <laughs> right. We <laughs> so so this is a who watches the watchman sort of situation, right? We're we're on guard against bugs, but who's on guard against our bugs? Well, we need DV DV.
0: So, what kind of modeling software do you use?
2: Well, it's arcane. It's magical. It's weird. We write software using S- System Verilog, which is essentially the same suite of languages as the design is written in, but we use a much more behavioral form of the language and a little that's less geared towards describing hardware and more geared towards being you know general purpose software so we're writing software that is in this special purpose language to in order to find bugs in the hardware that it's associated with and so that software can get very complicated and that's another th- aspect of dV that can can be problematic is that you, you may be creating too much collateral on the verification side. Kalpana and I have been on projects where the rate of growth of the DV collateral was actually higher than the, the rate of growth of the design collateral generation over generation. And, you know, sometimes as much as 4X faster. If you, So if your DV code base is growing at 4X the rate of your RTL code base, that is an imbalance. That, that says something is sick in your project and you're you need a reset. And so um, there, you should be on guard against that kind of increase in complexity.
0: Seems like it would blow Glenn Hinton's mind. Exactly. you, know, you need many of him for that. Yeah,
2: <laughs> that's right. Well, our RTL is only one Hinton, <laughs> but our DV collateral is three Hintons. So, so what, what do you do in that situation? Do you throw up the
0: red flag and say, let's go back and redesign, re-architect?
1: Yes, I think there are times when that is the right action to take. Um As much as possible, you you don't want to be in that place, though, right? And so as people are developing the verification collateral, we would like to educate people on what all things they have to keep in mind as they're developing it. The thing that often I think many of us forget is we think whatever we're working on today, that is it, and nothing else is going to come in to change things, right? And and so kind of reminding people that, whatever code we're creating today will probably live for the next 10 years or even 20 years right and when you keep that long term in mind the fact that you your the design that you are that you are trying to verify also will uh, grow in its capabilities and also the verification space increases then i think you will create much more the, the right verification co- uh, collateral right we need we take some steps to help people think about the problem space Uh, so that we can avoid that situation. But if we are really in a bad place, yeah, I think you'll have to reset it. It's just hard to fund those just because, you know, you like creating all this verification doesn't help you tape out, like doesn't, you don't ship it, right? And so trying to pay for it specifically to reset it, I think is a hard thing to invest in. But sometimes it's the right thing and, and you've got to bite the bullet.
0: Yeah, one of my former mentors always told me that we're not shipping the simulator Exactly. We're not shipping the mm-hmm. model. Yes. That's not how we make money.
1: Yes. Yes. So. But
0: it's a really great tool to guide the silicon and keep it on rails and ensure that we get the right product out.
1: Exactly. It's a tool to get to the end result. It's not the end result.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It seems like your experience comes from working through these mistakes and going through the battles. Do you have any war stories that you can share? that can help us see into the mind of a design verification engineer
1: yeah i can speak from my experience so i'm not a verification um, collateral developer my strength i would say is in coming up with test cases and you know creating content tests for those and then finding bugs uh, i've always worked with somebody else who's really good at creating the verification environment with me and you know stacy is one of those awesome people <laughs> But I have learned even in with the kinds of things that I do, even to this day, like every single day when I'm testing something and I'm debugging something, I learn about scenarios I just didn't think of. And usually when I um, when I said like, oh, I don't think that's an issue and I move on from it, you know, in a few days that comes back <laughs> as a bug. And it's like, oh, dang it. I should have paid attention to that strange thing I noticed in the RTL or the strange thing I noticed that I'm not checking in my checker, right? Or uh, my test is not providing this traffic. And so definitely like every single day I am learning in terms of uh, did I miss something where it escaped to silicon, you know, knock on wood, I have not had that painful learning in my career. But there definitely have been cases where I didn't find the problem soon enough, because I wasn't diligently chasing every single thing at the time I first noticed it. And so like I find it later and the later you find, as Stacey said, you know, the cost goes up. And so I've definitely experienced that. Where like, oh, if only I did this six months ago, I could have avoided this problem, right? So,
2: so you never owned a Silicon Escape?
1: In the areas that I verified, mm-hmm. I have not had a Silicon Escape.
2: It must be nice. But
1: I have dealt with... Calls, right? Like, I remember the first time I did DV, I was responsible for floating point adder. And floating point arithmetic is like awesomely complex. And when that product taped out, I got a call saying that, hey, come into the lab. It was at like, I think 6 a.m. in the morning, come into the lab because an ad isn't working on silicon. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm pretty sure I tested this ad. And a very simple, like I think like a ad, one plus one wasn't working, right? And one point two in floating point. And I, I just couldn't understand, like, how could I miss something? Because I know have things passing. So I've had some frightening calls, which turned out to not be logic issues in the end. But yeah. Well, how did lived... you dodge
2: the bullet on that one, on the ad?
1: It was actually a schematic issue. It was not an RTL uh, issue. Yes. RTL was correct, but the schematic netlist uh. was wrong. And this is where another layer of verification happens, which is GLS or gate level simulation, where you check that your netlist and RTL are, you know, they're providing the same behavior, right? So I dodged it because I wasn't doing GLS for that. But yeah, I've had some close calls, and thankfully they were not logic
2: bugs. Schematic bugs are the ultimate sigh of relief for, for logic. <laughs> for a logic behavior.
1: person, yes. It doesn't help the product, but
2: right. um, <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. DV folks have a certain mentality. There's... You kind of get into a, a mindset of finding large and impactful bugs. Has there been kind of like a Moby Dick? You spent so much of your time and effort trying to squash out that it changed you as a person. Ooh! Wow! Oh, it
1: changed me as a as a dev engineer. It has, I think. I think we've had. Yeah. Yeah, like I've had some, I I, I managed for much longer than I did verification work myself. And in the process, I've had a lot of aha moments because when any time like a bug has escaped to silicon, apart from figuring out what actually was the root cause, immediately the next set of things that we would do are like understand why it escaped because that whole process is super duper important to address whatever gaps are there and i would say like i've had like i've analyzed lots of bugs over you know the last 20 years or so of my career from that perspective right and there're definitely some life changing moments in that the most fun piece uh, fun bug that i remember is uh, in the uh, analog mixed signal world it's different from a pure digital verification aspects because in digital verification everything it's like at the one or a zero, it's binary. It's, I don't want to say it's easy. The space is vast, but it's still very much tangible. Like if you know you did something in RTL, assuming schematics that don't have issues, it works. But in the analog mix signal land, in the analog land specifically, right, you can't represent what's happening in analog circuit exactly in the RTL. And so you abstract away some things when you model them. And you're also running with the circuits itself. But the amount of variation you have on the behavior of the analog circuits because of temperature, the room is cold, the room is hot, different results. And my, the, my first analog escape that I dealt with, it just made me appreciate the complexity of the work that we are doing and how many things we have to guard ourselves against. And it, it turns out that the, it was a logic bug. It just didn't show up in like a typical operating conditions, right? And it showed up when the ambient temperature in the room was different. And so it's like, whoa, I I would never even think of that, right? And so that one bug was like blocking everybody in the product. Until we figured out how to work around it, we couldn't make progress on the platform. And so that was a eye opener for me because that was my first project where I led that team. And I took it as my personal responsibility to make sure that sort of a thing never happens again. Like we never miss that because it impacts the entire product. And so, I would say, like, yeah, it was life changing in that it changed <laughs> how I looked at the problem and also like what all actions we took from that point onwards. Right. So
0: yeah, I think yeah. most of the life changing bugs tend to be where you have to you realize you have to think outside the box. Yes. Sometimes. Yes. There was this one of the students, one of my fellow classmates. Uh, when I was in college, you know we were working on these eprom programming modules, and uh this this person he had you know about this little box and had the little EPROM on top that he had programmed to do some some kind of logic uh, I forget what it was, but he was uh, working on it in his dorm and then he uh, walked across campus to show his professor and when he got there turned it on and it didn't work and he was like, "Oh, what happened?" Well, it was a sunny day outside. And as he's walking, the EEPROM got deprogrammed Erased. due to the UV. <laughs> so it was something that's completely out of his control, not in his realm of uh, yes. expertise, right? But, you know, Professor, you know, she was able to figure it out pretty quickly. So it's, you know, it reminded me of when you were telling your story about the heat situation there. Yeah, I remember when... I was a young architect, and my first full design project, we initiated kind of a get well program. It seemed to be we had you know not the best functionality at that point, and so it was all hands on deck and I loved the situation of being all hands on deck because I was able to, for the first time, interact and collaborate with people in uh, d. v. and design and I remember one week I was responsible for banging out four logic bugs finding them and kind of helping to root cause them. And I felt really good because I, I was like, wow, this astronaut has got his wings, like that kind of situation. An architect has his wings. And and one of those was actually a, I still remember it really clearly because it, it showed me what I'm capable of doing and, and what the perf tests are capable of doing. Uh, the perf test exposed a rotator bug in the first level cache logic, which prevented a uh, there was like a bypass from a 32-bit to a 64-bit. And we had, there was no other test for it. The designer had kind of missed it. And, uh, you know, my my forwarding logic showed that it should happen. And And so it was really good to kind of own that. And I would say because it was my first one, kind of from inception, I, I created the test. I ex- exercised the test. I found the bug and kind of held the guy to the fire and said, yeah, I think this is right. And we had to have a big meeting to discuss whether it should be fixed in this Block or a fixed downstream somewhere
2: else, trying to get those early is always great finding bugs is an interesting experience because you are giving feedback on the design, and in some cases you will encounter someone who owns that design who gets a little defensive about it right it's a it's a, always a well it's not always it's it's usually a fair critique to say, I have found this problem in your logic.' Sometimes a designer will push back and say, well, I don't think you're test... I think you're breaking assumptions, you know? and And you may say where is this assumption documented? And that's where we get into the notion of specifications, which I think is another term we actually have not said yet in this conversation. Specifications is one area, you know, in DV, we talk about finding bugs in the design. But the only way we're able to find bugs in the design is if we have something to compare the design to. And that is the specification, which is what usually the architects own. And so uh, that's another important aspect of what we do. And so so Always talking, write good specs.
0: You're, so you're you're kind of talking about a, a golden reference model <laughs> yeah. that can give you the correct answer, correct right. functional answer.
2: A bug in at its core is a mismatch between what is expected and what is observed, right? And if you can't clearly state what is expected, then it's impossible to find bugs. I mean, you can guess at it, and then you have to work out kind of after the fact, well, is this really a bug? Or is this just something you shouldn't be doing because the design doesn't allow it?
1: Yeah, I think to create that reference model, you need a spec. And if it's an architecturally, uh, like an ARM or an x86 specification, that would say what the behavior should be. Uh, When you're doing work at a lower granularity, like at a block level or a unit level, I think the only way you you don't have the full machine to say what architectural behavior is, but you only have that small entity, and until the, unless the specification for how the interfaces are supposed to behave and how that block is supposed to behave, you really can't check the correctness and find the problems, right? And so, yeah, having well-documented, crisp specs are important. This may happen, that may not happen, are not good ways of documenting because we don't know what to do with the maze or may not. Yes. So, so
0: how, how do you figure out what to do? with that spec. Actually, let's let's take a broader question. How how do you become a great verification engineer? It, it, you listen to
2: a lot of 80s music.
1: There's that. <laughs> yes, that's that very, stasis. Very important. recipe for yep. uh success. I listen to 60s music, so mm, it's enough. a different <laughs> time zone.
0: Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mixtape number
1: 2. Right. <laughs> so, I think I'll I'll answer more from a I think like a person who does mostly debug kind of a perspective. And Stacy, you can answer from a person who builds a lot of the verification infrastructure, right? Like part of my work, right, it's really important that first we, we know what the goal is, right? Like what is, the, what is the intent of the design as captured in the spec? And then you have to come up with the list of test cases or what we typically capture in a test plan. And being able to articulate again, crisply in the test plan, what you plan to attack is important. Because if, if you're ambiguous, then when let's say you as an architect are reviewing the plan with me, you might think I'm testing X, Y, Z, whereas I'm only testing X. And here we have a hole in that Y and Z go undetected for a while, right? So thoroughly understanding the spec and clearly documenting what I intend to test is very important. And in order to come up with the test cases itself, it's another, that itself is an art. It's one thing to say I'm building for something. It's another thing to say how I'm going to find all the problems with what I'm building, right? So you really have to put sort of a, how do I break this design mindset? And so that you have to think outside the box, right? And, And so that is a, some people are naturally really good at it. I think the rest of us, you can absolutely learn. You've got to train your brain to think along those lines, right? If you put in effort, you can absolutely come up with a list of cases. And even if you forget something, when you review the plan with other people, if you write it well, they can give you meaningful feedback. You can make a thorough test plan. And then once you have that, going and creating your test content in a way that is uh, scalable. So you have to have some software mindset, because ultimately you are building software. It just serves a different purpose than what we typically think of as software. So you have to have good software skills, even planning skills from that perspective, right? How do I organize my content? And then once you run it on the design, you've got to debug. And so you got to have good debug skills. And this is like troubleshooting, right? Okay, your TV is not working. You need to, you can't just you know, randomly press all buttons and see what's going on, right? You, even if you do that, it takes time. And so you need to have a, you need to develop intuition and like what to chase. And so let's say you run a test, you see a particular error message saying, this isn't the expected behavior. You need to, you need to, again, understand enough of the design so that you can figure out which uh, rabbit hole you need to chase. And also like when to stop that and then come back and re-steer yourself, right? So that itself is an, is an art because you, the more you do it, the more you learn the tricks of the trade and each of us develops our techniques, so to speak. And we can share, right? We learn best practices from each other. So debug skills are super important. And as I said, like when you're debugging, you even if you're trying to debug one problem, the journey... You observe various things, and that attention to detail is important because you may find a bug that is not being flagged by that error message. And so attention to detail is absolutely very It seems
0: like point. these DV skills have gone outside of the walls of this workplace and into your life as you've been debugging your television and <laughs> most likely your parents' televisions and VCRs yes. for many years. <laughs> yes,
1: yes. I think, uh, yeah, I think it, you... you I want to say you almost become what you do, or vice versa, you know, it becomes part of you, right? Like finding problems, it sort of becomes part of who you are over time, even if you were not, you know, not that way before you started doing TV.
0: But not in the judgmental way.
1: In a, a, yeah, in a a positive way, I think, because the world needs us, right? Yes. We need the builders and we need the people who will say your building is not quite great, so...
0: Stacey, you had mentioned some of your mentors. Could you share more about what characteristics make up a great DV engineer and what do you look for in your mentors?
2: Okay. So, one important thing I think that is a behavioral thing that you can demonstrate towards other DV people is avoiding the aspect of blame. Like, yeah, you're, I found a bug in a design, but we have to realize, like I said, everybody codes bugs. Everybody has bugs in everything that they do, including DV people, including architects. There are bugs in specs, right? And so reminding people that engineering is mistake prone. And so there's no point, like I'm driving quality into a design, but I don't need to make that a reflection of the person that's actually doing that design, right? And so that's important. And Uh, The other thing I think that is important is to remind people of the trade-offs that they're supposed to be making. When young engineers come in to do DV work, they think, I got to write tests. I got to find bugs. I got to write tests. I got to find bugs. Okay, test plan time, right? There is an overarching concern. As I mentioned, there's a cost to finding bugs. Sometimes you may try to do too much to find bugs, say, at the block level when a bug may be more appropriately found at the CPU level. Now, that's not to say that you should not find the bug, but it may put a cap on the amount of investment you put into finding that bug, right? Every bug has a cost. When you develop more collateral to find bugs, you pay a cost in developing that collateral, you pay a cost in maintaining that collateral, and then you pay a cost for propagating that collateral to your, your, the next generation, as Kalpan alluded to earlier. So understanding the big picture also. Yeah. You're making engineering trade-offs in everything you do, even when you're writing tests and finding bugs. Some tests aren't worth writing. Some bugs may make sense to defer until some other more appropriate platform. I would even say that there are some bugs that are appropriate to, to not find until silicon, right? every project manager that listens to this is gonna have a shudder when I say that. But it's true because you, I I may have to extend the project deadlines to find particular bugs in the pre-silicon timeframe, which may make the overall picture of a product that's delivered on time actually harder to achieve. So yeah, go for the bugs you find at the block level, but realize that there's only so much investment you can put at the block level. And then there's only so much investment you can put at the CPU level. There's only so much investment you can put at the SOC level. And then you got to have silicon where the where the rubber really hits the road. So always keep in mind those trade-offs. It's not always just about find all the bugs right now. I, I've been harping on that message for 10, 15 years now. So,
1: I think as a there, there is what risks we take at the individual level and what we risks we take at the program level, right? Because in the end, it's all about risk management. DV is all about risk management. We're not going to be able to stand anywhere and say, I'll make the risk zero because I'm doing DV for, you know, I don't know, my lifetime, right? And so it's really important that DV engineers systematically attack the problem, right? With the right priorities and the right platform and everything, and then you you are very honest and open about laying the risks on the table of what you didn't achieve. Because then we can collectively look at the remaining space and see if at the program level, is this a risk that we can take and tape out or ship? Or no, we got to do something still before we give the go for the next step, whatever is in the process, right? If every individual... Does their own thing and they don't lay the risk on the table, then obviously we don't know because I as a DV verification manager might think, oh, the risk profile is this, but somebody else might have actually left a big door open there. And I'm not even aware of that. Right. So, yeah, prioritize your work, but in an informed fashion so that collectively we are able to mitigate the risk in the right way.
2: Here's something to think about. If you have a, let's say you have a product that's going to revolutionize the market and you know that you have a competitor that's working on a similar innovation. You, your project may take the informed risk of saying, you know what, if we could get out a quarter earlier into the market, even if we have a higher risk profile for functional bugs, that may make sense for the overall goals, right? And so, so I, I'm not saying I've personally encountered that, but you could envision this case. If you've got, if you have such a dramatically important innovation that getting to market is really the important factor, you may sacrifice on some of the risk, on, on some of the verification, just because having it out there is, is the value, yep. even if there may be mistakes. I could probably mention a feature in the original Pentium four. Symmetric multi-threading is a good example, right? Where that innovation was actually designed into a generation of products before it was actually ever turned on to the public, right? And the reason was just that the the verification complexity was so high and the risk was so high that we put it in a full generation before we turned it on because we needed that much time to be able to find all the bugs. And so that that definitely steered our... Our trade-offs as verification on the on that original Pentium Four project, we said, you know what we know we're going to turn this feature on, and have it present and have it available for us to test in silicon, but the public will never see it until some future generation. So you can let that guide your. Um, That's like your a very large way to
0: do risk mitigation.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that was because Intel was so far ahead of the competition at that moment in time that they could afford to make that trade-off. So, it, again, like Kalpana said, it's a big, it's very much a big picture thing. You have to understand, you have to take very informed risks. Yes.
1: Yeah, I think as DV engineers, we've got to strive for finding everything we can in a systematic prioritized fashion, but recognize that, yeah, in the end, there's some things we will leave on the table, and as long as it's an informed risk-taking, I think we will do fine. Excellent. One of the things people wonder is, is DV really a career? Or not, right? Because we don't learn about it in school. And so, how do you choose? How do you decide if this is the right career for you? And is this even like a thing that you do for the rest of your life? And for that, I would say, like, when I s- left school also, I certainly did not leave thinking that I'll be a verification engineer because I did not learn about verification. All you learn is, you uh, know, typical curriculum, in at least in, the, in this segment, would be maybe some computer architecture, some VLSI courses, and some, some software programming or operating systems, right? A combination of that. And then you want to do some wonderful things with it. When I started verification 20-plus years ago, I realized that this actually can be a career and I remember my manager at that time you know reminding me of that but I wasn't still so sure that I could actually make it a lifetime thing and then over time I realized how how much no offense to any other domain but like how much more fulfilling it is for somebody with my interests right like I get to understand the architecture I get to understand design I get to understand you know, like I get to do software work, I get to do post-silicon work, right? I get to see all of the picture, which is different from what maybe if I'm a designer, I'm working on one piece and you also get to see the picture in your area, but like I get to see the picture of the whole thing I'm working on, like the entire core, for example, right? And so I, I think there are some awesome opportunities in this. If you like the kind of work that you do, And there are so many verification openings. And most importantly, we are looking for people who really love to do software development, who like to be in the hardware world. And obviously, anybody who likes troubleshooting, you know, debug, um, find find bugs, right? I think that 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 passion has to be there for you to do your job because that's the goal. And so I invite anybody who has these interests and skills to take a look at the openings that we have and come share the fun with us.
2: Excellent.
0: And Stacey, this this career has been floating your boat.
2: Mm-hmm. 25 years. 25 years you've been going at it. That's right. Actually, probably 27 years. In 1992, I did internships with the PowerPC Consortium that was at that time working on PowerPC 601. And I did two internships with 601 and and then another internship with the 604 product. My first internship, I was a design intern, and I worked on timing tools. And I don't want to demean people that are working on the fine field of circuit timing, but it was the most boring thing i had ever experienced in my life. My second internship, I came back and I wrote test programs to validate, to verify the JTAG functionality of the PowerPC 601. I remember finding bugs in it and thinking, man, I just saved IBM, you know, millions and billions of dollars. Now, of course, PowerPC 601 sold approximately 73, you know, there's like, there's like <laughs> maybe a hundred of those out in the, you know, in the world. But anyway, I, at the time, I thought it was a big deal. And, and that's what got me hooked, finding those bugs and, and improving the quality of the design for these, for these very important projects, you know. And that's what makes it tick for me excellent
0: thank you both for being here in ampere studios i want to thank kalpana Katpali. She is the director of design verification here at ampere and stacy ross the senior principal engineer in the design verification team very happy to learn a little bit more about design verification and how it fits into the puzzle with uh, architects and designers all coming together it feels like a large group
2: hug <laughs> yeah.
1: Thank you for inviting us and letting us share our experiences.
2: Excellent. Death to bugs. Yes.